We are finally rounding out the last quarter of 2021. The killers of Ahmaud Aubrey are finally headed to court. And Trump's facing legal action also. And it's been a year since the murder of George Floyd, but still diverse communities all over this country are facing the same immense challenges and systemic bias in our legal system that they faced before George Floyd's death. This week, Politicon welcomes an expert from the front lines of our legal system and one with plenty of experience to speak from about how our structures should be changed. In her forthcoming book, Her Honor, Judge LaDoris Cordell provides a rare and thought-provoking insider account of our legal system, and she shares vivid stories of the cases that came through her courtroom. From her experience breaking barriers, fighting for justice, and her intimate knowledge of the need for criminal justice reform, and how to execute it to benefit millions of people across the country, Judge Cordell has a big piece of the puzzle for how we can fix one of the biggest systemic issues facing our country. And hopefully, she can also help us answer the question, how the heck are we going to get along? I'm very much a a court justice system nerd. So, um, but I am, uh, but I'm very interested in, I mean, listen, there are lots of judges throughout the world, um, throughout the country, especially. And, and a lot of people have really been talking about our justice system in general, uh, especially over the last two years. It's been a really important topic that's getting some attention that I think it's lacked for a while. But you've worked in, you know, sort of, well, you've been in the justice system for a while, but you've really done a lot of work in trying to improve it. And so your book, which comes out next week, or this week? Is on this, Tuesday. What is it comes date? on today's, Tuesday. Okay, yeah, it comes out on Tuesday. Yes. Um, is a lot about how we can improve it and some of the things that you've seen through your experience that are not um, necessarily working as well as they could be. Uh, what made you want to write something in the first place? Clay, I just wanted to let you know um, that I, I don't call it a justice system. I call it a legal system because there's a lot to be done to get it to have justice. And so what I've done in the book is talk about my own experience being on the front lines, because that's what trial court judges are. We're on the front lines. And it's really the people's court, because what trial judges do in all the states is really impact just about everybody's lives. Uh, So, for example, just to kind of put things in perspective, um, there are nine U.S. Supreme Court justices, and every year they hear about 80 new cases, In the United States, there are about 30,000 trial court judges throughout the country who each year receive 80 million new filings a year. And what trial judges do, and I call trial courts the people's court because trial courts impact everybody's lives. If you've ever gotten a traffic ticket and go into traffic, traffic court, there's a trial court judge. Adoptions name changes, criminal cases, people fighting over wills where someone has died. and We, um, juvenile, both kids who have been taken away from homes and placed in uh, foster homes. Trial judges do all of these things. Uh, When people are evicted, where do you go? You go to state trial court judges. So there is very little that state trial court judges don't impact in our lives, but so many people know so little about trial court judges, about what, what we do, how we even get there, how we're disciplined, and of course, how the system even works. So I call this book, Her Honor, I call it, um, I call it a primer because it's educational, and I call it a memoir. So put it together as a primoir. Just coming up with a with a phrase for it. So this is this is a primoir. And 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 Clay, I just have three things I want people to get out of this book. I want to educate. I want to entertain because this isn't all just boring dolls. There's some interesting, funny stuff in the book. And the third is to energize. I want to energize judges, both current, retired, and everybody who reads this book to step up and make this system into a justice system and more than just a legal system. 
Okay, so I want to go back to why you decided to do be a judge in the first place, because in the paths that people choose after going to law school, being a prosecutor, a uh, public defender, and being a judge, not necessarily the places that you go to pay off your law school debts. <laughs> it's Absolutely. not the highest paying gig in right. the world. And I have to imagine the level of stress since you're talking about how many, you know, the millions of cases that are in front of especially trial court judges. It's not something that you, uh, that is, is low stress. And it's also the kind of work that I, I know you have to have taken home with you so often. So why do that instead of being just an attorney um, and being able to pay those law law school fees off a lot faster? Right. And, <laughs> and you make a good point because law school is very expensive. And we can talk about that a little later about what I think people who want to go into the law um, can do to be able to make it so that you can live a reasonable life after going to law school. But with with me, uh, we've got to go back in the day, um, and that's when I was the only black female in my law school class at Stanford. Um, and I had this big afro, um, I mean, like, big deal. And so I declined to cut it, to straighten it, and so I went out into the world looking for a job, and I couldn't really get employment. There was no, the big corporate firms were like, nope, we're not having it, you don't look the part. And again, this was a time when there were very few people who looked like me going into the legal world. So I made a way where there was no way. I opened my own law practice in a community of color where there'd never been a private law practice. And it was hard. It was hard, but I, I learned a lot. I grew up a lot. Um, and it was really by accident that I, the judiciary came into my life. So I had appeared in front of judges because I was a litigator. I was a mostly a criminal defense attorney. And I was oftentimes uh, found attitudes of condescension from judges because most of these judges before whom I appeared were white males. Not all of them were, were that way, but there were a good number who just were not happy to see somebody who looked like me coming into their courtroom. Uh, so it was really by accident. And in the first chapter of the book called Bitten by the Judge Bug, I tell about how it happened. Um, I, My family, there'd never been anybody in the legal profession. My parents came up with their parents in the Great Migration from the South to the north, to Pennsylvania, where I was born and raised. And my parents knew that they wanted their three daughters, I'm a middle, to go to college and get an education, which we all did. So we're, we're breaking barriers as we you know, came up, as the families came up from the South, as many black families did. Um, so by accident, really, I got a phone call. Uh, at the time, I was practicing law, and I was also the assistant dean of at Stanford Law School, where my primary job there was to look at the admission of people of color and to really improve the numbers. I get a phone call from someone I did not know from a judge, a white male judge who eventually was to become my friend and a good colleague who just said, you know what, um, I'm trying to bring more diversity and more women into our Judge pro tem program. So pro tem in, in the translation from the Latin means for the time. And so there are programs in many courts where if you're a lawyer and you've practiced so many years, you can sit for a day as a judge on a small claims case. Small claims are judge duty cases where no lawyers allow right. people suing each other. So he asked, can I put your name on the list? Because I'm trying to diversify this program. I said, sure, put it on the list. And then I forgot about it. A uh, few months later, I get a phone call. My name has come up. It's just a random thing. And I said, it's your time. Would you like to come and be a judge for a day? Sure. So I go to this court, not far from where I live, and put on a robe, go in, and um, I write in the chapter what happened and what it was that, that hooked me. Uh, I, I'm going to leave it as a teaser for those who haven't read the book, and just let me say yeah, this. Yeah, I was going to say, don't give it all up. <laughs> but it's all about, I'll just say this, it's all about it was all about hair, like hair, like hair, like your wonderful hair. Okay. Yes. <laughs> well, mine's different. I don't know what wonderful word we use to describe now. It's mine's, all about mine's my midlife right. crisis right now. But but so you enjoyed it enough to want to be in it. But I'm assuming you also figured that you were able to make more of a difference, or at least a different type of difference um, as a judge than you were able to on the other side of the table or on the other side of the bench, so to speak. Um, 
Was what you thought you'd encounter as a judge, did it end up being true? Oh, my goodness. Um, So when I started, I was very young. I was 32, and uh, I was naive. I was excited, and I knew that I wanted to be a part of a system and do justice. And what I found is this, and it's no shock to anybody, all systems resist change. I don't care if it's an education system, if they're businesses and the courts, the legal system, everyone, these systems resist change. So if you... So you wanted to make some of well, these changes yourself? Is that what it, how you found out they didn't like well, it? Well, you know, I, I was raised um, by parents who were always on the forefront in the community and always told, you know, step up. If you have an opportunity and see things that need to be made better, you do it. Um, so, and it's... That's how I, that's my philosophy. So it isn't just make change to make change. It's if you can make things better. So when I saw things in the system and I write about it in the book, for example, drunk driving, when I saw that I could make things better in our court by um, imposing, coming up with something creative, which was the interlock breath devices. I was the first judge in California and maybe in the country to require convicted drunk drivers who came into my court to put breath devices in their cars. And the whole idea... Really? Look at well, you. I know, and, and I think most people know no, about they, those now. Well, but um, now, well, they are familiar with with them existing now. But back when you did it, so you were the, one of the first to do that. That's pretty incredible. The, I know I was the first in California, and mm-hmm. I got pushback. If you read in the book, you'll read the story. I got sued. I got sued by prosecutors. Like, so what it. What were these folks thinking the alternative should have been then? They wanted it to be, uh, you know, just lose your license completely? Or what, what was your motivation for deciding that you wanted to make that change? What, what did you see that was missing right. that made right. you think, okay, we got to come up with sure. a different so way? So the way the system operates, and it operates, probably operated in most courts around the country, you're convic- you get it. Let's say you're convicted of drunk driving. All right, here's, here's the punishment. You ready? You don't use your license, you pay a fine, and you go to maybe traffic school or something. That's it. Just slap on the right. wrist. So people are back out there, and the recidivism rate, people repeating, it happens. So I'm saying, what can we do to get in front of this. So with an interlock device, it prevents the car from starting if you have any alcohol in your system, right? But what really motivated me, I left the court and it was five, a little after five in the evening, I got hit by a drunk driver. I was injured. I was off work for eight weeks. I had a hairline fracture of the spine. And when I went back to work, I found out that the person who took me out Got basically oh, God. a slap on the wrist. So I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, what what are we doing? So it took that for I have me to, to open my eyes and see what was happening in the, with the system. I have to imagine also that that it cannot be a productive solution. I mean, I, I, we've we've certainly seen this in lots of entertainment media, Orange is the New Black type things to to bring this a little bit into focus. But when the solution to stopping the criminal activity or the undesirable activity ends up putting the defendant or the 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 guilty party in a position where they can't get it they can't perform their own job or they can't get a job or they can't drive to work or whatnot cannot possibly help with the recidivism rates either i mean being able to have having a license taken away while it's a pretty obvious solution, um, it does also end up meaning that some of these folks are not able to go to work and not able to, to feed themselves and not able to, <laughs> and, and then potentially end up in, in even worse situations because of it. So, I mean, is the system, is our system today really set up to prevent people from going to jail or prison, or is it simply set up to Put to punish people and put them in jail and prison when they when they've done something wrong. What's what? What do we tr- what do we think we're doing and what are we really so doing? You're talking now about the criminal legal system because there's also civil, right, right, right. right? So if we talk about the criminal system, it is driven entirely by two entities. One, law enforcement, because if law enforcement intervenes and makes an arrest, you're now in the system. But even more powerful are the prosecutors. Prosecutors have complete discretion to charge people with crimes. 
prosecutors can decide, no, I'm not going to proceed. I'll just charge with a misdemeanor or a felony, or I'll make this a strike. It's all entirely by prosecutors. And does that always come down to the elected district attorney or do ADAs who are not elected but hired by the, do they make some of those decisions also? Everyone in the DA's office has the ability to charge people with crimes. The head, the district attorney, the district attorney sets the policy. So, for example, in San Francisco, when Kamala Harris was the DA, she said, I'm not pursuing the death penalty. So she sets the policy, and then those in the office follow the policy, and if they don't, then they leave. But that has to, in some ways, sort of take away a little bit of the accountability on the decisions to, to charge, right? I mean, if, if it's always the DA who makes that decision, the elected district attorney who makes that decision, then, I mean, arguably, the people— can vote them out or back in based on those decisions. But you're saying that assistant district attorneys get to make some of those charging decisions themselves. That's And they're not elected folks, right? Correct. And they make them all the time. But if you look at the recent um, elections of progressive DAs, George Gascon in in Los Angeles, you've got Chesa Bodine in San Francisco, you have Larry Kramer in Philadelphia, they are setting policies. And some of their people on their... Staffs don't like the policies and they're resisting them. Some leave. But that's what the head person does, decides, okay, here's what we're going to do. So these progressive DAs are looking more, less at punishment, less at pulling people into the system and fashioning ways to treat people, to try to, to try to, you know, make people so that they are better able to thrive in society and not hurt other people and hurt themselves. Now, does that mean they're soft on crime? No, it doesn't mean they're soft on crime. Well, that's the question. No. That's the question I want to ask you, because obviously on the other side, on the more, I don't know if, if it's considered conservative or not, but certainly on the right side of this argument, the directionally right side of the argument, um, you have a lot of people who say, well, so what are we supposed to do? Not arrest people when they've broken the law, not do anything about it when they protest or, or I don't like the word riot, but when they, a lot of the stuff we saw last summer, especially um, people on the right were saying, so what's the answer? Just don't arrest people who've done, who've broken the law. As a judge, how do you respond to, to those sorts of accusations that people are just saying, well, let people run, do what they want well, to do. People are wrong if they're characterizing progressive DAs as saying, oh, don't arrest anybody, let everybody just run amok. That's not what's happening at all. And so there, that's magical thinking on the other side. Um, but understand, even judges with all the authority and power we have, we really don't have as much power as prosecutors do because they decide what cases come before us. We have limited authority. Maybe I can reduce a felony to a misdemeanor if I think it is appropriate and lawfully and I can do it. But but basically, the criminal system is really driven by the prosecutors who decide who to pull into the system. But the prosecutors have are limited in some respects when it comes to, you know, what subpoenas they can get what warrants they can get. Is that not right? Well, or you, they, you, they, you, they have a lot of latitude. Trust me, to, they really drive the criminal system. Where judges have the most say is when we're involved in sentencing, uh, because that's our purview. It is not up to prosecutors. They cannot do that. Judges do it. But we only work with what cases are put before us, and they are put before us. So if, someone, so if a prosecutor comes to you with a, uh, you know, a presumption of guilt for over this particular suspect and wants, therefore, a warrant to go search X, Y, or Z. Judges have some power to say, no, you don't have enough here. Is that not correct? Judges issue the warrants based upon information that are brought by prosecutors and by police officers oftentimes to a judge. And so we have rules. We look look at the affidavit and look and see how it is supported. Is it supported by facts? And then we can decide, yeah, I'm going to sign the warrant or I'm not. I, I mean, I don't want to misrepresent what you're saying, so I'm going to say what I'm hearing and then you tell me if I'm wrong. It sounds like perhaps many would say <laughs> that prosecutors have far too much control. Is that an argument that, that would be valid to you? I mean, do you think prosecutors, I mean, when we're, when we're talking about making changes and putting uh, either limits on how the legal system works, 
Are we talking about changing laws? Are we talking about the problem being with police, as a lot of people say, or the problem being with prosecutors having too much control? Um, where, if you could only pick one place to start fixing, where would it be? Would it be in the prosecutor's First office? of all, the answer when you threw out three things is yes, yes, and yes. We need to look at laws. <laughs> we need to look at all of this. Right. And am I saying— oh, But I'm only letting you choose one that's, that's today. Fine. Like, which that's one's fine. the most I, important? I mean, what I wrote this book, and I wrote Her Honor, because I took a look at the legal system and decided that judges and people who are impacted by the system can make changes through legislation— through just voting, knowing who you're putting on the bench. So, you know, for me, there there isn't just one big thing. For example, a chapter called The Fix, I give 10 things that I believe that all of us can do to fix what's broken in the system because many things are broken. Well, we'll give, I don't want you to tell even half of them because I want people to, to read the book. But tell me, Without using voting as one of them, because I think people say voting all the time. We hear it, you know, argue. I mean, it should work. It's supposed to work. Occasionally it does work that way, but, but it, hadn't, it hadn't worked yet to fix some of these issues. What, what are the most important things that people can really do to actually stop some of the injustices that happen? Uh, I mean, first, first off, system? everyone just needs to be educated and have information. And that's why I said part of this book is just educating people about the system. But let me just give you one example that's in the chapter, The Fix, okay? The judiciary is the third branch of a democracy. We have the executive branch, legislative, and judicial. When the judiciary is threatened, when it gets threatened so that we're pulling it out and it's no longer an independent judiciary, democracy itself is threatened. And what is happening in this country is that judiciary's independence is being threatened on all levels, federal, but I'm going to talk about state. And one example I give in the fix is the recall. So recalls are used to hold judges accountable. Right. Um, and, but what has happened with that? And used a lot in California, well, correct? Well, not a lot, but it has been used more recently very effectively in removing a California judge. And a judge had not been removed before him for something like 80 years. But my, my point is mm. that the recall is being used by people who just say, you know— I don't like that sentence that judge gave or that decision. For that reason, let's get rid of that judge. The problem I have is that if that decision was lawful and a judge gets removed because you didn't like the decision, albeit it was a lawful decision, we have a problem. Because, for example, when the judge in California was removed, thereafter, judges around the country have been looking over their shoulders saying, uh-oh, if I make this decision, and I believe it's lawful and the right mm. decision, but if somebody doesn't like it, I can lose my job. So do we want judges, picture yourself coming into court, do you want a judge before making a decision that's right and proper to say, oh, wait a minute, let me look over my shoulder and kind of test the winds? Well, because that's Justice where we're O'Connor, headed. Justice O'Connor, former Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, has been pretty vocal herself about not wanting the judicial branch to be an elected body. Um, I think in lots of states, certainly here in North Carolina, judges are elected. Um, in many states, they're elected. And in California, clearly they can be taken, they can be recalled. Do you think that that is a, do you think that that is a solution that would be effective um, to, to take the should the judicial branch be accountable to voters in the same way that legislative and executive branches okay, are? So you've mixed two things here. One is recall. The other is electing judges. So if Right. Do you, are, are judges elected in California? Well, I don't so know. So again, in the book, I have a whole chapter called Judges for Sale because it talks about how judges are elected in every state. So understand federal judges, they're there for life. They're not, they can, they're not right. subject to recall. The only way you get rid right, of them but is in to states we have but another in the issue. states exactly in North Carolina in California judges are elected and what has happened if we just talk now I'm not talking recall just talking elections elections have become gotten to the point where judges are treated like politicians judges are not 
politicians. Politicians campaign and make promises. That's what they do. They say to voters, if I'm right, elected... but that's why I'm... At, well, but, you're being a politician now, Your Honor, because <laughs> do you think that that should be taken no, no, away no, no. or what should I'm it be? What I'm saying is that judges, first of all, make a distinction. Judges are not politicians. Judges do should never make promises about what they're going to do when they hear right. cases. But that being said... Elections are all around the country, and judges are campaigning. There are special interest groups that funnel millions of dollars to get judges that they want because those judges are going to do what they want. My point in the book is we need to get rid of judicial elections. We need to have merit commissions where judges are evaluated at certain points after they've served a certain period of time on the bench. So I, I write about it in the book, but yes. And, and let me tell you, I, I, I got to the bench. One, I was appointed by a governor, right. but then Jerry I Brown. moved up and I had to run for a seat. So I know what I'm talking about. I have been in that election process and it's about raising money and going to lawyers and everybody else. That should not be, in my view, should not but- be in the system. But outside the outside the special interest parts and the you know because I totally agree on that as well, but there would be people who would argue. But yes, the judicial branch, just like the legislative branch and the executive branch, should be answerable to the people. They should have to. So how do you make? I mean, I'm I'm I'm. I have my own answer because I hate judicial elections myself. But, but what's sure. the response sure. to that question, which is, I don't, we shouldn't have judges who aren't accountable to the I people. I agree with you and anyone else who believes that judges should be accountable. Absolutely. So how are judges held accountable now? Well, trial court judges, whenever we make a decision, our decisions can be reviewed by appellate courts and we can get reversed. That's one. Judges have specific terms. So in California, a trial court judge serves for six years. At the end of that term, the public can weigh in and decide if that judge should continue as a judge. In my view, not by elections, by by merit commissions, some of whom are populated by members of the public who review the judge's conduct over that six-year period, who get information from litigants who've appeared in front of that judge, from lawyers who've appeared, and hold public hearings to evaluate whether or not a judge should continue if the judge wants another term. But isn't there also an argument that says judges are accountable to the law, not to the people, right? I mean, are judges not supposed to be accountable to what the legislators have have written versus the whims of, you know, the zeitgeist this month? So, <laughs> I mean, there, there's a reason that justice is supposed to be blind, correct? Is there not an argument that says judges shouldn't? Because if, if judges were responsible to the people, then Brown versus Board of Education probably would not have passed in the 50s as it did. I mean, would not have been decided the way it was in the 50s. Uh, can you sure. explain to me the difference sure. between legislating laws and interpreting sure, them? No problem. Judges are not accountable to the legislature. When we take an oath, we take an oath to uphold all of the laws. The laws are made by legislatures and laws are made by appellate courts. So our oath is to the law, but understand judges also have discretion. And the, the biggest area in which judges use the discretion is in sentencing people. That's where we use our own experiences, um, our own life experiences. We look at the law, and then we have discretion when we impose sentences. So we're not computers that just like, okay, this, this, and this, and this is what we have to do. That's mandatory minimum sentencing, which has resulted in mass incarceration. That's not what I'm talking about. So we are, but are there- accountable because there are all ways to review decisions we make, but our oath is to uphold the laws. But are, are there times in your career where, uh, assuming a bench trial and no jury involved, you've had to either find someone guilty or not guilty, even though you didn't necessarily agree with the law, but because the law was written as it was written and you had to follow it? I mean, don't you have to weigh—don't judges have to weigh those types of—I uh, those? I mean, it has to be very difficult to find someone guilty of something that you don't think should be against the law. 
but it is, right? Absolutely. So, Clay, what I write about in the book is a case that was really the one that I decided I, it was time for me to retire. And it's, it was mm. a, a man who pled guilty in front of me, and I had to sentence him under California's then draconian three strikes law, a law that I did not believe in. Uh, felt that it was much, much too harsh. And indeed, the law was the harshest of the three strikes laws that had been utilized around the country. So I realized that I was going to have to impose a long, long sentence on this person, like 55 years to life. I did not believe he deserved it. However, I also knew I was wearing a robe and I'd taken an oath to uphold all of the laws, even the laws I did not like or approve of. So mm-hmm. I did the dirty deed. I did what I took an oath to do. And thereafter, I decided, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. And when I left the bench in the last chapter of the book, I write about what I did from the outside to address the three strikes law, to um, write what I believe the wrongs that had resulted from it. So again, another teaser, and it's an interesting story about a case that I took on after I left the bench. It's a career criminal um, act in the Federal Career Criminal Act that just the Supreme Court just heard a case on that last week, where essentially the three strikes law of the uh, in federal cases, they're determining its viability. I, I try to listen to them, but I can't follow them like you probably could. Um, <laughs> do you think enough judges do what you did? Um, which I think a lot of people would say is the right thing, arguably, to do what you're required to do and then say, you know, I, I can't stand by, I can't keep doing this because I don't agree with it, so I'm going to move on? Or do you think there, are there, are there crooked judges, I guess is what I'm asking you? Do you think that there's a problem with the people who are serving? I'm not certainly not asking for any names, but do you think that's a, a problem in this, in this country, in our legal system? So, Clay, I have a chapter in the book called Bad Judges. And it talks about some really bad judges, trial court judges around the country, um, and the discipline programs or, or the, the ways that judges are disciplined around the country. So to ask you, answer your question, I think that the majority of judges are decent, good people and well-intentioned. That being said, there is still a lot of bias. And I speak as an African-American woman um, who has seen that bias and... Um, there are, and, and let me tell you another reason it was hard for me when I had this case in front of me, because so many defendants who were coming to my court looked like me, were black and brown people. And so there is additional pressure when you're a judge of color, particularly a trial court judge, when you have so many people who look like you coming in. And I know those folks coming in were looking at me and saying, oh, you know, there's a, a sister on the bench, and I know, you know, she's really going to you know, really help me out here? And the answer is no. I'm going to apply the laws as best I can. But I I certainly, and if you talk to a lot of other judges of color, they'll tell you the same thing. There's a lot of pressure there. Um, But it's so important that we're there um, to show people that, yeah, I, you know, you can do the work I'm doing to say to young people coming up that, that, you know, people who look like them are wearing these black robes and trying to do the right thing. So I think in the main, to answer your original question, I think most judges are well-intentioned, good people, but we all have to deal with an issue of our biases, both conscious and also unconscious biases. Where does that pressure come from? You said there was a lot of pressure on you. Is that is that from yourself? Um, is it from the community, your family? Is it from the media? Yes. You know, how much does that yes, affect you? Yes, to all of that. Yes. To all of that. <laughs> <Right>. Absolutely. <laughs> no, really, you by asking that question, you've really given the answer. There are all of those pressures. Uh, I write about that in the book when I talk about when I started out. Tell me, picture it. I mean, the, I'm the only, first and only black woman judge in all of Northern California So nobody on the court from Northern California has ever looked like me. Of course there's pressure. So, and I write about it very forthrightly and and how, you know what, you know, when you're the first, when you're breaking barriers, you better not mess up. You better not. So it's about really working hard. Pressure was on because the expectation was, she's not going to. She's not going to do well. She's going to mess up. So, and then there's community looking at us saying, you know, represent, you know, represent, don't mess up. So, yes, there's all kinds of pressures for anyone who breaks a barrier to become the first, be it in, in um, 
be it regard to gender, if it's regard to, you know, being gay, if it's being, you know, person of color, all of those things. So no different in the judiciary than anywhere else. So the media obviously has played a much bigger role in the past year or so, I'd argue, than they have in previous years on kind of shining a light on some of this these issues within the legal system. I'm going to use, try my best to use your terminology from now on in my own life, because I think it's pretty straightforward and right. Um, do you think it's being handled effectively? Um, you know, we, we did an episode the week after George Floyd's murder here on this, this podcast, um, and I asked Michael Steele, uh, from former Republican Party chairman and Torre was on that episode, I believe, as well. And I asked them, are we going to be back in the same place here in a few years or a few months? Or is this one really a turning point? And, and most of them, maybe it's because we were all sort of very upset and depressed that week. Most of them said, no, I feel like this is a turning point. Um, and listen, I, I would agree that Certainly a lot more attention has been brought to the legal system um, and the, the downsides of the way it's being run right now than had been in the past. Uh, there's been a lot more spotlight on it. But certain things, despite all the political capital that was available, um, certain things that probably should have been handled um, – still haven't been handled. I'm talking about qualified immunity as one of them. I'm talking about, uh, you know, the power that prosecutors have, the power that police unions have to protect cops. And, and you know, um, do you think that it's, do you think that the, the, the movement to make our legal system more equitable and less systemically racially biased has been as effective as it could be? The, the, the movement to reform our legal system is happening now, and I believe it will absolutely continue. Now, how the media addresses it is going to be very important. It always is. And oftentimes, the media attention is short-lived. So, we, you know, there's a focus on something, and then, you know, the media will move to something else. But I believe the individuals in various communities around this country and various nonprofits are going to keep this momentum going. So will there be significant reform? Yeah. And if, if the Supreme Court doesn't do anything about qualified immunity, then things can change even in the states. And by the way, qualified immunity was, was something invented entirely by the Supreme Court. Didn't even exist before they decide to make it a thing. Um, and so they can just as easily make it not a thing. Um, I want to correct one other thing you said, if I could. You mentioned police yeah, please, unions. Please. Um, there are no such things. Uh, there are no police unions. There are police fraternities. There are brotherhoods. They are not unions. In fact, you won't find any police departments anywhere that call themselves unions. Uh, unions... Well, that call themselves unions, but do they not have essentially the same bargaining, no. collective bargaining power and ability right. to do that in certain right. states? None of them call themselves unions. They are police... They're call POAs, themselves. the Police Officers Association. So unions look out for all workers, Unions look out for all workers. That's not what these police fraternities and brotherhoods do. They look out for themselves. And if you look at history, oftentimes it is law enforcement that has been out there with, with sticks and beating workers who are on strike. For example, steel workers. I'm talking back in the day and continu continuing. So I never call them unions. They are police fraternities. They are brotherhoods. They don't call themselves that, even in their titles. But arguably, they have, they have powers and influence that perhaps is less than fair. Is that a nice they, way to they say are, it? Is they that are very powerful because they have money and because they really intimidate uh, lawmakers by saying, if you don't do what we want and pass these laws, we have sufficient money to back someone who will run against you. Or if you help right. us. So in that sense, yeah. But they also have the ability to, they also have the ability in, in cities like Minneapolis to, to set special 
perks, I guess, for some of their officers who, you know, if I were arrested for assaulting someone, I would be taken and questioned immediately, right? I know in Minneapolis they have different rules for for police officers who've been arrested for that type of thing. They have to be allowed to see the reports that have been given by other fellow officers before they get questioned, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, we, I don't want to go down that specific rabbit hole, but are there not things, powers that those fraternities <laughs> have that could have and maybe even should have been addressed sure. um, back when all that political capital was uh, was readily available and there was there was actually a, a, a groundswell of support on both sides of the aisle to try to get some things done and changed. Why, why are we still here a year later um, with, you know, a lot of superficial things, important, but somewhat superficial things done, but very little of the real systemic change that needs to have been done has been done right. in the past Well, just year. so your listeners understand why I can weigh in on this, for five years I was the independent police auditor for the city of San Jose, the 10th largest city in the United States, and my job was civilian oversight over the San Jose Police Department. So I, I do have some knowledge and understanding about law enforcement and how it works. To answer your question, uh, it's the, the reason that change has not yet come is because these police brotherhoods and fraternities negotiate contracts with their various cities and towns and counties. And these contracts provide all kinds of protections for them. And that's why part of right. this movement, they're looking now at those contract negotiations and saying, let's have them done in public. Let's not have this done in secret. So change is happening. It's, it's just not going to happen overnight. Uh, but I absolutely believe in this reform movement, and I think that good things will eventually come from it, but people have to be persistent. This is going to be a, a long haul. So we let um, our listeners know who that you were coming on this week, and um, we had some very interesting ones. Oftentimes the questions come in uh, all very focused on one specific issue, but I think because they knew you were a judge who could talk about everything, they go all across the spectrum here. I want to get to a Great. few of them. Of James in L.A. wants to know why he never gets selected as a judge's ju- juror. Um, sure. No, that's, <laughs> so a, good, does it that's take? a good question, James. Uh, there's a chapter in my book called Thank You for Your Service, and it's all about jurors and jury duty and how jurors are selected. And in California, if they look at the voter registration, they look at driver's license, DMV, and um, they're starting to look at other kinds of ways to get jurors in. But, you know, when you think about it, by the way, in, in the chapter I write about, also, if you do get picked to serve on a jury, do you get paid? So that's, you know, what do you get paid? Do you get paid? Should you get paid? So it is a civic duty. The jury, in my view, is the most important part of the legal system. And I really believe in it. Um, so, yeah, there have been some rogue jurors at times, but and I write about that, by the way. So do jurors get paid? California pays $15 a day. That's outrageous. In the book I, oh, man. In the book I argue— I think, I think in North Carolina we at least get 35. Well, you know how you can find out? <laughs> you can find out because in my book I have an appendix, and in it I have every single state listed and what every state oh, pays wow. its jurors. So just take a look. You can oh. find North Carolina, everything in the appendix to the book. Full reference book. Uh, so, James, um, uh, you know, I'm glad you want to serve as a juror, and I hope you do get to serve. I would love to serve. I've never served as a juror, and I would love to be able to do it, too. And there's no age limit. You can be, you know, a senior. Don't you think that they would kick you out Why? in voir dire if, very, if you I'd were very, a former oh, judge? Come on, I'd be very fair. <laughs> no, I know. I'm sure you so would, I'm, but I feel like if I was a, a prosecutor, defense attorney, I'd be like, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> okay, I want to grab a few random ones because they're, they kind of go everywhere. Allie in Detroit, um, how can we expect healthy and socially conscious humans to come out of our inhumane prisons? Allie, I, your answer, the answer is in your question. You can't. As our prisons <laughs> are set up now, um, it is a fight for people to even survive and what's happening now with this reform movement is a way to change that, to send fewer people in. So remember, you can go to prison in some town, cities, and some states because you're, you're driving with a suspended license. And as you noted earlier, Clay, you need your car to get to work. 
but you can't pay the money mm-hmm. to get the... So all of these kinds of things are being addressed. But do we need to pull back? And is the, is the reform movement looking at incarceration? It absolutely is. And one prime example is in San Jose, California, uh, where I was the police auditor. There is a big push now regarding the incarceration of people in the local jails and saying, we don't need that. We need mental health facilities. We need people to get um, treatment regarding drug treatment. And we know it costs much more to incarcerate people than it does to give people treatment. Final thing, under mandatory minimum sentencing, and when three strikes was in its heyday, say in California, 80% and more of those people sentenced to life in prison with third strikes were sentenced because of non-serious, non-violent third strikes, meaning thefts and drugs. Outrageous. Mm. Outrageous. And the tide is turning. We are moving away from that. Okay, I want to try to get at least two more in because they've been so they're so interesting this week. Um, Lara or Laura from Austin, Texas. Sorry, Lara or Laura. Um, are we at a point where the entire legal system, including police, judges, and members of Congress, should wear body cams? Well, I I I think body cams are important with regard to law enforcement, and I think every police department, of which there are eighteen thousand in this country. Every single person who gets in a patrol car, gets on a bicycle, or patrols on foot should be wearing body cameras, and they should be on and not on at the discretion of the officer when the officer feels like it should come Uh on. Um, So with regard to legislators, I mean, we have, you know, the the meetings of city councils. And by the way, I ran and was elected to the city council in my city, so I know of what I speak. These council meetings— Super county meetings, uh, state letters, they're all open to the public. What we have to do is, you know, get access and we can get access. You don't have to be there anymore. Everything is either live streamed. So, no, I don't, I I mean, I I think what Laura or Lara is saying is that we just don't trust. Well, that, well, that's a whole other issue, right? The whole trust issue is who are we putting in office? Who are we putting there? So that's up to us. That's such voters. So, you know, what, you know why I ran for our city council? Because people were all complaining about all the dysfunction in the city council in our city. And I said, well, wait a minute. Why am I complaining? Get in there and do something about it. I say, especially to young people, run for office. Run for office. I don't care if it's a small town or a city. Get in there. Stop complaining. And get it. And particularly if you believe trust is an issue, then, you know, stop crying about it. Stop whining about it and, and, and put yourself there. Or get involved in a campaign for someone who, sure. you, who you really respect and sure. appreciate. Because I, I, only, I only add that because anybody who's listened to this show has heard me bitch and moan about um, running for office myself and <laughs> not loving it. So <laughs> they won't listen to They're, they're probably not going to run because I've scared them off of it. But you can get very involved in the campaigns of people who you, who you do trust, Lara or Laura, um, you know, and, and make sure that you elect people who you can trust and you don't feel you have to have a body cam on yeah. all the time, right? Right. Um, last one from a, from a listener real quick, because um, I, I can't wait. I really am excited to hear your answer on this one. Sean from San Francisco, so not far. Um, what's a current or historical case that you think everyone should research? Should research or read? I'm assuming read. Sure. Um, but yeah. I mean, there's a lot. So, for example, let, let, me, let me suggest one of them is just a startling decision from way back in the day. And that mm-hmm. was the, the Dred Scott decision. It oh, is okay. just mind-blowing to read it. Then, next read, Plessy versus Ferguson, okay? And then the progress to Brown versus Board of Education. So just look, and, and why I say that is that look at where we have come, where we ended up in 1954, So I say that to those who don't have hope, who say, oh, my God, the system has baked in it the racism, and it does. But look at what happened over a period of time where people who looked like me were property, and it was said so in Dred Scott and then in Plessy, and then we get to Brown. Now, do we have a way to go? Yes, progress is measured, not how far we have come, but how far we have yet to go. And we have yet a long way to go. But at the same time, I firmly believe, as I write in the last chapter in the book, I, I still have a belief in the system. I devoted my professional life to the judiciary and to the practice of law. And I encourage people, get educated, learn this information, and do not give up. 
Please do not give up. Always be hopeful and know that as long as you can breathe, you should be doing things to make things better. And finally, I end with my mantra. And it's really was, I got it from. Oh, well, hold on. I want you to hold. Right. I want you to hold on your right. mantra because we're going to, I'm going to give you the last okay. word and I want to make that, let you put that apart of it. But I want to ask a follow-up to that. Dred Scott, Plessy, Brown, is there a fourth one in that line, in that progression that you think has happened recently in the last few years that you're watching, whether it be a voting rights case, whether it be a, uh, I mean, is, the, is there something currently? Because those are, those are three incredibly, well, some of them heartbreaking yeah. and disturbing decisions, and then Brown, obviously a landmark. Is there something next in that line of cases? Is there a fourth that you'd put? Yeah, so there is a recent decision by the U.S. Supreme Court, and I'd have to look in the book to get the name of it, but it addressed um, racial bias in the conviction of a black man. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court where this man was tried six times by a prosecutor who kept excluding black people from the jury. And it was the last thing, it's the Flowers case. And it's like the flower, you smell a flower. Um, and the decision in it, and what's shocking, was written by Justice Kavanaugh, somebody who yeah, I yeah. Seven to do two not rolling, care two. for. But that decision right. was an amazing decision about how racism has permeated the that case and how the court said this just cannot stand. Um, so, and I write about it in Flowers in my book. versus Mississippi. Thank you. Yes. Flowers versus Mississippi, right. for those who are listening, um, that's what that one was right. called. And yeah, that's a very, that's, I think that's a perfect analog to that yeah. line because it's it right along those same lines. So, we are, I mean, anyone who has listened to this show and, and knows who we have on as guests. We don't have folks on to shill their books unless we, um, or a producer or someone has had, has a passionate interest in it. And so I really encourage, it's got a very long title. Her Honor is all you need to remember. Her Honor, LaDoris Cordell, um, is, is enough to remember. It'll be in our show notes, but it's got a very powerful and important subtitle to Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works what's broken, and how to change it. Um, I think especially over the past year, uh, people have really been paying attention to the issues in the legal system, and it's really remarkable and important, I think, to hear from somebody who's on the very, who has been on the very front lines of it and can do it in a really narrative way. So it's got a lot of facts, but it's not like reading a textbook at all. Um, There's some fun, there's some funny, there's some lighthearted stuff, some heartbreaking stuff in it as well. Her Honor, LaDoris Cordell, um, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Fix It. Uh, We usually talk a lot of politics on this particular show. Uh, We didn't get into too much politics, but that's good because, you know, sometimes it gets a little heated. Uh, But our our goal here is to get people to listen to each other, listen to points of view that they don't necessarily listen to normally. So I ask you the same question that I ask everybody to close, which is, Judge Cordell, how the heck are we going to get along? First, I I thank you for the conversation, and I love the way you push me, Um, and and I I appreciate it. Um, I hope that you have found my responses to be forthright. And um, so in response to your question, let me give two answers. Uh, First is the mantra by by which I live my life, and it was a phrase coined by Alice Walker, and it is, activism is my rent for living on this planet. And I say to everyone, pay your rent. Do the best you can do to pay your rent every moment that you are on this planet. How do we best talk to each other, get along? Um, I've been in the middle of a lot of stuff. And what I can say is define your principles. Know what who you are and what you stand for. And be willing at the very minimum, to listen. Um, That's all that's required. And um, I hope that all will do that. But in the bottom line is just pay your rent 